Welcome to The Tanya Acker Show. I'm Tanya Acker. Welcome to the show. So this has really been quite a time in that American history of ours. We've had a second impeachment. We've had a coup. Every day feels like three months. But there was talk about the 25th Amendment. This whole moment really might be summed up as an example of why we should be so glad we have a constitution. I mean, good grief. Uh, One constitutional crisis after another, lots of people talking about what the constitution means and who is or isn't violating it, and just a lot of really momentous things. We had a sitting president cast doubt on the legitimacy of a democratic election uh, after many, many courts said that uh, there were no problems with counting all of the votes uh, in in the election. We had uh, record numbers of voters. We also had senators uh, and others standing by uh, a president of the United States and actually furthering the suggestion by a sitting president. So many crazy things have happened. Um, I wanted to bring you this conversation that I had with Professor Peter Shuck. He's a a Yale Law professor. He's a nationally renowned legal scholar. We spoke a bit ago about um, the 25th Amendment and the First Amendment and the impeachment process. We know a lot more now than Peter and I did, but I did think it was still worth bringing you the conversation so uh, you could have a little more just context to some of the constitutional concepts and things that have been thrown around. Uh, At the end of the day, the only thing that's going to keep us safe is our constitution and our ability to abide by it and know it and respect it. So here I am with Peter. Enjoy. Welcome back to the show, Peter Shuck. You were my first guest, and I'm honored to have you here at such a momentous time in the country's history. Welcome back. Thank you. Great to be here. So can you explain to people what the 25th Amendment is? Well, the 25th Amendment, which was adopted in, uh, the, in the late 60s when Johnson, President Johnson was still in office, uh, is designed to provide uh, for a president who is disabled or resigns or is otherwise unable to perform his duties in office. And um, it, it, it gives a lot of power to uh, Congress. Uh, and also to his cabinet. And the cabinet, it's basically two procedures. One is if the cabinet concludes that he's unable to perform his uh, uh, his uh, responsibilities, and uh, that's not defined much beyond that, they can, uh, they can uh, make a finding to that effect that will uh, end his, uh, that will move him to a, uh, a different status, and the uh, vice president will become the acting uh, president. It also authorizes a Congress to create an alternative method for determining when the president is unable to perform his uh, responsibilities uh, by creating a different body that will do that. That uh, has not been used yet and will not be used in this instance, although I think it might uh, well have worked in this particular case because the cabinet members do not seem uh, eager or uh, which is over- understating their unwillingness to do this 
to take on that political responsibility, constitutional responsibility. I've heard the argument that the incapacity that the 25th Amendment contemplates refers to physical incapacity and that we don't have a situation here where the president is physically incapacitated. What do you say to that? No, I think it's uh, any kind of incapacity uh, relating to his relating to his condition. Uh, in the two times that it's been used were situations in which uh, presidents uh, were anesthetized or were in the hospital for brief periods of time and were therefore incommunicado in a way. Uh, they were very brief and uh, there were no there were no complications at all. But uh, no, I don't think it's limited to uh, physical incapacity. Well, let me ask you this, because people are assuming that as a result of the conduct that led to the riot and the insurrection on January 6th, that the president may be suffering from some mental incapacity. Maybe he's just a despot. Uh, Is it the case that necessarily that every authoritarian uh, leader necessarily is mentally incapacitated? Well, it's a very important question. And uh, the Constitution does not uh, answer it in, in any kind of decisive way. I think uh, the distinction between an incapacity and a style of governing uh, is a very important distinction. I I think the Constitution did not contemplate that an election could be set aside uh, simply because, I say simply, it's a very important uh, condition, but uh, uh, merely because the president uh, adopts a governing style that uh, is uh, tyrannical. Uh, there is the impeachment process and there's the election process. And those are the uh, those are really the two uh, safeguards against that kind of uh, conduct. So you're more than a Facebook scholar. Uh, you are a, a Yale law professor, New York law school professor. I'm sorry, NYU law professor. You've taught at Bolt. Uh, you were one of the country's leading legal scholars. You were one of my law professors. <laughs> what do you think? about invoking the 25th here? Put aside the likelihood of whether or not you think it will be invoked. Do you think it should be invoked? I think it should be invoked. Uh, Why? I, I think he has demonstrated a, uh, a not simply a lawlessness and uh, not simply a perverse governing style, but I think he is dangerous uh, uh, in his command over resources, military and other resources that could be used in ways that would uh, damage the republic. Uh, uh, He seems uh, incapable of telling the truth, um, and that suggests a a mental incapacity, a psychological incapacity. I I think he is a psychopath and a sociopath. The Washington Post has kept a list of the lies he's told, and uh, it was in October, I believe, it was in excess of 25,000, which is... Uh, you know, a sign of a real dis- disability, to say the least. So um, I don't think he f- he simply falls on the on the side of the line that you mentioned earlier, which is that uh, he has a, a tyrannical ruling style. Uh, I think he's a, an ill man. You wrote a book a few years ago, uh, excellent book, highly recommend to all, 
why government fails so often. And some of what you said, I think, is really prescient uh, about this moment. Tell us a little bit, Peter, about how it is you think we got to a place where a president of the United States could sell a story based on no facts whatsoever, be enabled in that story by national leaders, uh, so much so that at the end of the day, we end up with a mob overtaking the Capitol and five people dead. Well, in, in, in one respect, it's a very simple story, and that is that he has a base that is utterly loyal to him, and it's a not insignificant number of people. It's uh, uh, it's hard to measure it, but it's 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 in the in the neighborhood of forty uh, percent of the electorate, just which is incredible. That uh, seventy four million people voted for him. Four years after four years of experiencing his incompetence and his incapacity and his and his corruption. So that's a very solid group of people, and politicians count the votes. And they are very ambitious, and uh, particularly uh, we've seen that particularly with uh, somebody like Senator Hawley and uh, and Ted Cruz, but many others as well. And they think that uh, if he mounts a campaign against them in retaliation for any criticism that they would level, that he will uh, he can harm them in many ways. One is preventing them from f- raising funds. Another is to persuade uh, others to mount primary campaigns against the uh, the individual politician and go around denouncing them. And he, since he lies compulsively, uh, anything uh, he might want to say, he, he can say. So he can do them great damage. And I think that's still true today. Uh, uh, indeed, he will be martyred as a result of this. And uh, while it may not his remaining support may not be uh, 74 million people. It's going to be a hell of a lot of people. His his the incubus, the uh, the uh, the cloud that he has created uh, will continue to haunt us. Do you think the tide is turning? Previous people who were previously loyalists, and when I say previously, I mean a week ago, who were loyalists are now flipping. Uh, and suggesting that all of this has gone too far. Do you think the tide is turning? Yes. I, in, in terms of Trump's uh, presidency, the tide has definitely turned. I think uh, there's enough embarrassment or shame or political calculation on the part of uh, some Republicans that that I think impeachment is is guaranteed and, and and conviction in an impeachment trial, if that's held, there may not be enough time, but if that's held, could, could actually occur. You mentioned Senator Hawley, uh, another Yale Law and, alum. Uh, he graduated I after I did. I was going to say, did you teach him? No. Did you teach <laughs> Never, never met him. He has suggested, because he lost his book deal, Simon & Schuster canceled his book deal. He has suggested that that is a consequence. I'm not quoting. I think he said the woke mob. Uh, speaking of mobs, uh, he should be familiar with the one that descended on the Capitol on January 6th. But in any event, he... Well, he raised his fist and saw Yeah, it. exactly, exactly. Uh, but he is criticizing and I believe has threatened to take action against his publisher, 
uh, or his former publisher for canceling uh, his book, uh, suggesting it violates the First Amendment. Now, what do you think about a First Amendment argument raised by an author uh, against a publisher who says, you know what, you're just a little too uh, far extreme. We don't want to publish your book. Good First Amendment argument or no? No, no First Amendment argument. Several, let me make several comments. First of all, it will be governed by the contract between Simon and Schuster and, uh, and Senator Hawley. And I don't know how those contracts are worded, but I'm sure there's an out for Simon Schuster of this in circumstances of this kind. So as a contractual matter, I suspect his position is very weak. As a First Amendment matter, there's no, there's no First Amendment issue at all. First Amendment applies to government, doesn't apply to private parties. And as a raging conservative, uh, he should respect the market and he should uh, honor the fact that the private actors in the market uh, can make up their own arrangements and uh, and act without the need for government permission. So uh, I think that's preposterous. The important thing is that we be able to argue with one another uh, respectfully, vehemently, but respect, respectfully, and not have our motives questioned simply because we're taking a position that's, uh, that's unpopular. Do you think about that obvious disparate treatment of the two groups of protesters? You know, on the one hand, uh, when Black folks show up at the Capitol, we deploy the National Guard to protect uh, memorials. Uh, And no disrespect to that memorial, it must be protected. However, when a white mob descends on the Capitol, we say uh, the Pentagon reportedly has suggested that the National Guard, there was a Washington Post piece that indicated that the National Guard wasn't armed, that they weren't given the full set of resources that they needed to push this mob back. What's your reaction to that when you see that? just Just to add to your introduction, Apparently, I, I read that Maxine Waters, Congressman Water, Congresswoman Waters, actually had a discussion with either the D.C. police or the Capitol Police or both, in which she uh, went down a checklist of dangerous conditions that were foreseeable that uh, she wanted them to prepare for. And they didn't prepare for any of them. They assured her that they would. But they uh, didn't. Uh, they obviously uh, didn't. Uh, didn't do it. How do you explain that? Can you explain that? Well, uh, no, I, I can't explain it in any uh, kind of definitive way. In my book about why government fails so often, talks about a number of uh, of phenomena that can help to explain it, such as the desire to af- avoid offending uh, politically powerful people. You have long described yourself as a militant moderate. I think of moderates as the folks who sit in the middle between two extremes. When one extreme, or rather between two sides, when one side or the extremes of one side have gone so off the rails, what does moderation mean in that context? Well, moderation is, is a couple of things, uh, in my view. Uh, one is it's, it's, a, it's a way of thinking about a problem. It's a way of analyzing a problem coolly and with due, due respect for facts. 
So that's one aspect of, uh, of, of, of being a moderate. Another is a suspicion of extreme claims on one side or another. And, a, and, and frankly, a skepticism about moralistic claims uh, dressed up as dogma. Because I think most moralistic claims require that we examine very closely what the sort of deep structure of that moral claim is and whether it comports with uh, actual, uh, actual facts. So that naturally puts a, a, a moderate in, in between what is an increasingly uh, polarized, uh, polarized society. Now, let me say a couple of things about that. One is that polarization is, in a way, a good thing. That is to say, we're a democracy. Uh, people disagree with one another. It's good that they disagree with one another because the world is complicated. No one has all the answers. And it's also inevitable that they will disagree with one another because you know, we, we have different uh, influences operating on us and, and different experiences. And we define the good life differently. So the fact that we're a divided society and that we're often bitterly divided is not, I think, a vice. It's, it's, it's actually a, a concession to human nature and in a democracy, it's a, it's a good thing. The question, of course, is how we resolve those differences. And we're committed to, or, uh, constitutionally and democratically, we're committed to doing that through a private sector and a public, public sphere. In the public sphere, through politics, which means uh, a lot of uh, uh, behavior that you know we wouldn't like to see in our neighbors and in our families, but that uh, simply is the way politics has always proceeded with very ambitious people uh, misrepresenting uh, situations and uh, forming alliances and then breaking those alliances when other opportunities arise and hypocrisy generally. That's part of politics. I don't think we should expect that politicians are going to be as as pure as uh, religious people are, or genuinely religious people are, or people who we consider very good, good people are in private life. So that's, uh, you know, we have no, there's no alternative to politics. But that also makes even more important the way in which we deal with each other in the private sector on, on matters that we disagree about. And that requires a good deal of tolerance for other people's views and an effort to persuade them. Most of us don't want to be persuaded. Most of us can't be persuaded when it comes to fundamental views. That's unfortunate, I think, because many of our views are, are misguided. They're well, maybe well-intentioned, but they're misguided because they're poorly informed. We don't understand the facts that bear upon those moral claims. How did we get to a place where it became so easy for so many otherwise smart, well-educated people uh, to embrace 
ideas and conspiracy theories that simply have no basis in fact. I mean, I know, you know, there's sometimes a tendency to lampoon the uh, people who were part of this insurrection. Some of them do, frankly, remind me of killer clowns. But there are a lot of, there were lawmakers in that audience. We've got that language and that rhetoric being uh, embraced by leaders, by national political leaders. How did we get to a place where facts and fact-finding became optional? Well, I say part of it is that it, it, it has always been true that politicians play fast and loose with, with facts. Secondly, some facts are capable of being, some of what we call facts are capable of, be, of being interpreted in a variety of, uh, of different ways. There are plausible interpretations of what we choose to call facts, but which, you know, can be can be matters of interpretation or uh, or, or definition. Part of it is human nature. Uh, I think uh, most people um, don't spend a lot of time thinking about these things. They're driven by we. I say they. We are driven to a great extent by emotions, by our emotions, by uh, our visions of what the world should be instead of what, what the world is. Uh, we all tend to favor our families and our friends. That seems to be deeply, deeply rooted in human nature. We also, human nature also makes us very savage in some respects. And the, the veneer of civilization is, I think, much thinner than we, than we generally imagine. Uh, the, the 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 savagery is not that far below the surface, and it doesn't take that much uh, to bring it uh, out in us. That's why we have certain institutions, including religion, which are designed to in part to tame that savagery. But uh, as 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 we all know, religion has actually caused a great deal of that savagery in in the history of uh, religion. So even something like religion, which is I think on the whole, it's been a very important institution throughout human history, uh, has that ambivalent quality or ambiguous quality. I think also our uh, social media has definitely magnified the the tendencies to to lie and to see a market in lying and and to uh, be able to say anything one wishes and, and know that uh, lots of people may be picking up on it and, uh, and, trans and transmitting it. And here again, it's a two-edged sword. I mean, social media is a great thing. What do you think about banning the president from Twitter? I think that's Twitter. That's a perfectly good example of uh, what I said about uh, Hawley. It's a, private, it's a private institution. It's very, very powerful, of course, but it's a private institution. It's not it's not uh, uh, government, and uh, therefore it can do whatever the hell it wants. And uh, if it concludes that that uh, he is uh, violating their norms or bad for business or any of a bunch of other motives that might animate uh, Facebook and Twitter and, uh, and so forth, they're perfectly free to do that. I, I they are they may be too powerful, and uh, uh, hopefully antitrust. Uh, investigations. You mean too powerful, separate and aside from uh, yeah. this, 
just have grown too big. Yeah, this the market power that I've just said they could legitimately exercise is dependent upon their being uh, subject to uh, legal controls and competition. And, you know, we'll see whether uh, whether they are. So let's go back to the 25th Amendment for a moment. What's the likelihood that you think it'll be invoked? Uh, it looks like Congress isn't going to impanel the body that you mentioned. They're proceeding along the impeachment right. path. Uh, do you think the cabinet will do anything, no. or are they just going to try to wait this out? No, they'll try to wait it out. Uh, some, as you as you mentioned at the outset, some cabinet members have already departed, and uh, others uh, probably will before they're they're put on the spot. In fact, it's been alleged. I, she denies it, but it's been alleged that. Uh, Betsy DeVos, the Secretary of Education, resigned so that she wouldn't have to make a decision under the twenty if the Twenty Fifth Amendment were invoked to characterize the president as uh, as disabled. So there'll be some of that. No, I don't think the Twenty Fifth Amendment's uh, going to uh, be successfully invoked. I think what will happen is that impeachment will occur. I don't know why it hasn't occurred already, frankly. And then there's a question as to whether the Senate uh, will uh, hold a trial, whether it could do, even if it wanted to do so, whether it could do so during the period that remains. My, in my own view, is uh, if, if he's impeached, Senate trial isn't uh, isn't all that important. Uh, there is one feature of the Senate trial, I think you mentioned it, uh, under the 25th Amendment, that the Senate can, although it's not required to, if it convicts, can decide that the pres- the the convicted president will no longer have the right to run for office. Don't know whether the Senate would do that. I don't know how important that is. As far as I'm concerned, if the Republican voters want to uh, vote for Trump, they shouldn't be barred from doing so by law, but, you know. Do you think he should be barred from running for certainly, office? They certainly ought to convict him. As far as barring him, uh, I'd like to see it, but but whether, uh, um, yes, <laughs> I, won't, I won't qualify that. Yes, they, uh, they ought to uh, bar him. Your uh, unemotional, moderate tendencies you had to really give it some thought. <laughs> You're a good professor. I'm glad you were one of my professors. <laughs> I, well, my, my thought was that, uh, you know, if the American people want to vote for somebody for a president, they shouldn't be deprived of the option of doing that. Uh, of course, uh, assuming that he meets all the other qualifications and, you know, can get the nomination and so forth. Let's talk for a moment before we go about what happens next, because in spite of their best efforts, uh, the insurrectionists were not able to prevent the certification of President-elect Biden and Vice President-elect Harris. They will be the president and vice president. They are going to be called upon to govern this country at a time when we're in a crisis uh, unlike any I've ever seen. Uh, We talked before we started the interview about uh, New York. I'm in LA. We both live in cities that were bustling and vibrant and are now boarded up and full of uh, many sick and desperate people. The country needs leadership. 
how does this president and this vice president reach across the aisle with people, some of whom enabled an insurrection? How does compromise happen in this kind of environment? Well, the person, the people who led the insurrection should be uh, barred from office, as in the case of, uh, of, of Trump, humiliated in the case of, uh, of Pence, and, uh, and rendered uh, political pariahs by, uh, in the case of those Republicans who, uh, who uh, supported this. In addition, I think the, uh, the, the, the composition of the Senate is now going to remove some of the obstacles that might otherwise have prevented uh, the Biden administration from doing what uh, needs to be done. The harder question really is what to do. And in case of uh, the, the COVID, so where we go from here, I think um, there are a number of di- the, the first, it seems to me the, the first priorities are getting rid of Trump, addressing COVID in the best way that is possible. And it's not obvious what the best ways are, but as I've just explained, but uh, I have no doubt that the Biden administration will do as good a job as can be done. Addressing our national security threats, which which Trump has completely ignored. He hasn't said a word about this, about the the, uh, the hacking uh, that threatens us at the deepest levels of our society. You think we're in danger right now? I do. I, I don't know that uh, our enemies are going to act on our vulnerability, but they've certainly now know about our vulnerability and uh, whether they'll do something. Uh, and apparently it's going to take quite a while to rectify that. The third, of course, is going to be to uh, bring the economy back. And uh, that's that's go- that's very tricky. Uh, it's going to take time. And what we do during the time when it's when it's slowly coming back is is raises a lot of difficult policy questions. It's not simply a matter of throwing money at it. It's also a question of how you design programs to create the right incentives for people uh, when you're giving them a lot of money. Last question: What is your advice for people? to become better fact checkers? Because if we don't do a better job reckoning with information, uh, I think we're going to lose this democracy. You mentioned that uh, the savagery is beating down the door. Uh, We're seeing it beat down the door of our democracy very literally. We're only going to fight back with facts, armed with facts. How do we become better fact checkers in in an environment where there's so much information? It's an extraordinarily important uh, question, but I think the answer uh, is also fairly straightforward, which is we have to read more. We have to read more broadly. It takes time. I mean, people are very busy with other things. So educating citizens is, is, uh, is uh, not, uh, not an easy thing, particularly in a society like ours, which is highly privatized and uh, in which uh, – uh, people are encouraged by the market and by their own proclivities to uh, to do things that are more entertaining. 
than uh, than uh, studying facts are. Uh, they should read my books. Tell us about your book, One Nation Divided, and how you think that it speaks to this moment that we're in. Okay, well, this is really in response to your question about how we get people to respect facts more. It takes it takes hard work. So I, I wrote this book in which I have chapters on poverty and on immigration and on campaign finance. It was really... Uh, uh, hot button issues. And uh, what I do is to bring the facts together and uh, in, in, a, in, a, in a rigorous way. If you don't do that, then you don't really, if, if you don't read in a serious way, it's, 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 uh, it's hard for you to develop views that are, that are uh, wise, I would say. It's it's not just a question of facts. It's also a question of values. But the values are uh, the values are often based on facts, uh, on factual uh, assumptions. So that, for example, with equality, equality is a value, but uh, it's an empty value unless you begin to address the factual questions of the kind that I that I mentioned uh, uh, before. So it, it requires that. I guess another thing is the people's opinion should not be so opinionated. <laughs> there ought to be, I think, more deference to the people who have thought about this, these sorts of things a lot. And I don't just mean professors. I really don't mean that. But I, I mean uh, uh, people uh, in, in the fields of science uh, and, uh, and other fields where the facts really really matter. And the idea that we have such strong, that we, I mean, the population in general has such strong feelings about issues that they couldn't possibly understand very clearly is, is, is a real problem in our politics, I think. Everybody needs to stop acting like they know everything, is, I think, your point. And read more. On that note, Everybody, read more. Read Peter's books, especially yeah. read One Nation Divided. Uh, don't just read your Facebook posts. Read Peter's books. You can <laughs> read my book, too, Make Your Case, but that's just about going to court. Uh, and we still have courts because we still have a democracy. And we're, we're only going to keep that democracy if we read and uh, choose our facts wisely. Send me, send me your book. I, did, I didn't know. Uh, I have. will. I will. I hope you never need it. I don't ever want you to have to, no more, I, you don't need to do any litigating. You need to just write some more and uh, give some more advice for helping us get out of this mess. Peter Shuck, you Thank are you a treasure. You're a treasure. Thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate it. It's just wonderful to be with you. Talk to you soon. Yeah. The Tanya Acker Show is written and executive produced by me. Sam Fragoso is my producer. Andre Lynn is my editor. Cole Mitchell is my composer. Sydney Freeman is my production assistant. And my show dog is Maximus Justice, also known as Max. If you like us, please go on to iTunes and leave a five-star review. Maybe I'll even have the chance to read it on the air. I will give you my hugest and most profuse thanks if you do. Thanks for listening, everybody. 